We've been interspersing some messages this spring between the Gospel of John and trying to also deal with some of the incredible issues that is facing our country and, and individuals today. Uh, this little mini-series I've been doing in between the Gospel of John is called Living with Confidence in a Chaotic World. And we've so far looked at uh, financial chaos and we've looked at uh, political chaos. And today we're going to turn our focus and look at cultural chaos. And I want to talk to you today about the topic of when a nation forgets God. Last fall, my wife and I spent a few days in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and we had the opportunity to visit the amazing Titanic Museum. And there I learned a tremendous amount about the quote-unquote unsinkable ship. During that tour, you are bombarded with so much information, it's kind of like drinking water from a fire hydrant, but there were a few numbers that did stick out to me. I want to share some of those with you. Three years and $200 million. That's how long and how much it costs to build the Titanic luxury liner. Two hours and 40 minutes. That's how long it took the ship to sink after it impacted the iceberg. 1,517. That's how many people died in the disaster. But here was the one number that stuck out to me the most. Here's the kicker. Six. That's the number of times Titanic was warned by other ships to beware of icebergs. Now another interesting factoid that I learned along the tour was that many scientists discovered that a fatal flaw in Titanic's design came in the thousands of tiny rivets that held the ship's hull together. In fact, here was an article out of National Geographic, uh, rivets may have doomed Titanic. But as a cost-cutting tactic, the builders used iron rivets instead of steel. An analysis of those rivets showed them to be riddled with slag or impurities in the metal which made them brittle and weak. And so when Titanic slammed into that iceberg, those riveted seams opened up like a zipper and that is what led to the ship also being broken in half as it descended to the floor of the Atlantic. Now in the days after that visit, I couldn't help but notice the close parallels between the United States, and the general feeling among many in our nation that the ship is going down. Like the Titanic, we are a nation with a glorious and costly beginning. Bathed in blood, America was born through the sacrifice and the determination and the grit of so many who have made our country into the freest and most prosperous nation in history. That much is undeniable. But we also, like the Titanic, have ignored warning signs of an impending disaster. Prideful leaders have piloted us into icebergs of sin and folly. Our whole is compromised because we no longer hold fast to the Word of God and the biblical principles that would make us a strong moral culture. And just like the Titanic today, you could say that as a nation, we are torn asunder. Can you remember a time when in your life we were more divided than we are today? Politically and, and spiritually, culturally, almost every way you want to divide us. I think about 200 years ago, a Scottish professor named Alexander Tidler, who was studying the rise and fall of nations down through the ages, 
distilled a nation's life cycle into this. Here's what he wrote. Quote, the average age of the world's greatest civilizations from the beginning of history has been about 200 years. During those 200 years, these nations always progress through the following sequence. Now listen to this. From bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from great courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, and from dependence back into bondage. Now where in the life cycle of that do you think we are today? Well, history is strewn with the wreckage of many great nations that have risen to power, prosperity, and prominence only to decline due to their own moral corruption and truth decay. And as we open Romans 1 this morning, Paul explains a timeless principle for all people living in all times at all places. It applies to every nation, whether they're a nation under God or whether they're a communist, socialist country. And the principle is this. Write it down. When a nation abandons God, God abandons that nation. And friend, we are living in that real time in this country. In today's message, I want to unpack this idea. And in doing so, I'm going to help you to understand how we, the people, got into this predicament. And secondly, as we recognize that the ship is indeed sinking, you and I as believers need to know how to tread water. Now, thankfully, we have a lifeguard who can walk on the water. Amen? But as we see the evil and the despair of our world growing stronger, may we not be pulled under by it, but may we be changed by a buoyant faith, by a faith that will help us to live confidently in these chaotic times, that we might be able to stay afloat in our marriage, our family, our church life, our, our witness, our work in this moral chaos. When a nation forgets God. Romans chapter 1. Let's just read the passage together. We'll start in verse 18. And by the way, if I were reading this uh, on a public square somewhere, this might be considered hate speech today. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then as we continue... For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, that though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to them who practice them. My, my. Romans 1. I want you to see today, number one, the downfall of a civilization. Like dominoes falling, Paul takes us blow by blow in that passage through a nation's moral collapse. Three times we will see the phrase in that passage, and God gave them over. That's in verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. The Greek word there used to describe that giving over is the word parodidomai, and it actually is used in a legal sense. It refers to a criminal that is being presented or handed over to a judge so that they might receive their trial and punishment. Now, the passage that we just read, obviously, is not bedtime reading. It is not for the faint of heart. But friend, you will never find a more truthful passage about your heart and my heart and about the life cycle of a nation when they abandon reason and God. Theologians have called what we just read in that passage the passive wrath of God. That is opposed to the active wrath of God, which is God's direct and cataclysmic judgment. If you will go back to your Old Testament and think of fire raining down on the city of Sodom in Genesis, or you think about the ten plagues uh, plaguing Egypt in the book of Exodus, or you fast forward into the book of Revelation and you read of the seal and the bowl and the trumpet judgments, that's the direct or active wrath of God. But this passage describes God's passive wrath where He removes His hand of blessing and protection and allows a people to be destroyed by the consequences of their pride and rebellion and wickedness. Bible scholar Mark Hitchcock gives this analogy. He says, quote, The wrath of God against nations can be thought of like a rushing Niagara River, which leads to the massively powerful waterfalls. It is God's hand which holds a boat in place against the mighty current. But when a nation rejects God's authority, he says, God doesn't just let go of the boat. He gives it a push downstream to its doom. And might I add, probably says the phrase, okay then, have it your way. Now, Paul delineates in this passage five steps. There are five stages of decline that Paul outlines that leads to the total downfall of a nation and as I read that passage, and as I exposed this passage this morning, you are going to see how we as a country are tracking right along with it. Now, don't make any mistake here this morning. I don't take pleasure in preaching this passage. 
I would have rather gone and preached some other passage this morning. But I felt constrained by the Spirit of God and beholden to the Word of God to help us to understand these incredible times that we are living in and how are we as God's people are called at such a time as this to live out our faith when the ship is going down. What are those five steps? Well, the first one is what I would call intellectualism. Intellectualism, we read about it in verses 18, 19, and 20. And the phrase that really stuck out in that passage to me was this little saying where Paul says that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, men know the truth about God. They understand that we're not some cosmic accident, that we're not the product of just time and matter and chance. We're not just the result of evolution, electrified pond scum. We're more than that. We recognize it. And yet men in their rebellion will take the truth, the very evident and apparent truth, and suppress it. They push it down. They cover it up. They sweep it under the rug. They lock it behind key and door because they don't want to deal with the fact of a living God, a powerful God, a holy God, a righteous God. I'd rather live my own way. God, leave me alone. And so in our intellectualism, we create all these philosophies, all these isms, all these different worldviews and religions to try and shut away the very truth, the very evident thing that we are created in God's image. That's intellectualism. You can go to a four-year university and college and hear all about it. From one professor pontificating to another. Isn't it interesting? We go to the places of higher learning today and you can come away with a four-year degree and thousands of dollars in debt and yet know nothing. Because they teach you that really you can't know anything. There is no truth. But Paul has explained here, a nation's descent begins when it denies God as creator. Now, in our country, perhaps nothing marked this shift more than the infamous Time magazine cover of 1966, which asked its readers, Is God dead? Borrowing that phrase from the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. It was also around this time that our Supreme Court decided to take prayer and Bible out of schools. Any of you tell me about that. You grew up in a different time in America. And you tell me that you grew up in a day when you started the school day with prayer. And the students were called up front by the homeroom teacher to open the Word of God and, and read the Bible. And we, we, we don't understand why our country is in the state that we're in. Look at what we've done. We've reasoned God out of our lives. Now, so in place of the Bible, what... What moved in the vacuum? Well, Charles Darwin's origin of species was adopted instead of the Bible. And thus began the indoctrination of the masses into the secular worldview. You see, evolution then provided a way to explain life without God. Oh, we, we don't need a creator. We're free to rule ourselves, to make up our rules as we desire. And so from then, it was a small step to moral relativism. We hear that today. Oh, you just live your truth and I'll live my truth. And as long as you don't hurt anybody, it's, it's, I guess it's okay and permissible. And then we're into postmodernism where there is no truth, there is no up, there is no down. We don't even know what it means to be a man or a woman anymore. You see... Not only does modern man not know where he has come from, he doesn't know where he is going, and he doesn't really seem to care about it either. But you see, without God, man has no meaning, no morality, no hope, and no answers. 
G.K. Chesterton, the great Christian writer, said this, quote, when men stop believing in God, the danger is not that they will believe nothing, but that they will believe in anything. Like the crazy culture that we live in now where we tell ourselves, oh, men can be pregnant now. You can decide what you want to be and your biology will just align up. The whole universe will rearrange itself. How foolish are we? What's the result? The result today is that millennials, that's my generation, those born from 1980 to 2000, are the most godless generation in our nation's history. Listen to this. There are more than 72 million millennials in the U.S. That's about 25% of the population. In 2008, researchers noted that 31% of millennials described themselves as the nuns. Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. That means they were religiously unaffiliated. They had none of a belief about God. But by 2018, in 10 years, that number jumped up to 42%. The most godless generation that's ever been in America. Also, you could add to that, the gayest generation. More millennials now describing themselves as attracted to the same sex. Intellectualism, that's the first of the five steps. The next step is ingratitude. We read about it in verse 21. Look at what the Bible says. For although they they knew God, they did not honor Him, watch this, or give thanks. Ingratitude. One of the symptoms of a Romans 1 society, listen to me, is that they constantly complain... They stay offended at everything and take every blessing for granted. They are ingrates, Paul says. In other words, what Paul is talking about here, there becomes an entitlement mentality among the population. I get this. I deserve this. Aren't I wonderful? You should bow down and worship me. What have you done for me today? I call this the Colin Kaepernick syndrome. We all dealt with this foolishness where you have an athlete that makes millions of dollars to play a game and yet spends every waking moment decrying how racist the country is and how oppressed he is and yet were it not for God, he wouldn't have that athletic ability to run around on the field and if it wasn't for this country, he wouldn't have the opportunity to move upward in life and go somewhere. That, my friend, is ungrateful. Man, Facebook's going to shut me off. But you know what our culture needs a healthy dose of today? Gospel truth. We need to be more biblically correct than politically correct. We've seen where politically correct has landed us. Do you enjoy it? Let's get back to the Bible. Let's get back to God's holy word and God's truth. Intellectualism, ingratitude. Now, don't, don't take me the wrong way. This country has never been perfect. And it never will be. But if you're an ungrateful person, you will always find something to complain about. Well, the Wi-Fi is too slow. It took me forever to, to get to work. Or whatever first world problem is causing us an issue that day. Listen to what Erwin Lutzer wrote about this toxic mentality of the woke worldview that makes people ungrateful. He wrote in his book, he said, quote, The strategy of the radical Marxist is to accentuate America's crimes and sins, destroy the reputation of its heroes, and use history to divide us into the oppressed and oppressors, rather than unite us. 
The America whose history is tarnished by the evils of slavery is also the same nation who fought and had the moral courage to end slavery. That same America gave us the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, inventions like the automobile, computer, internet, and put 12 men to walk on the moon. America has made possible a civilization that has positively affected many others around the world through education, technology, medicine, and charity. America gives people an equal opportunity, not an equal outcome. Very important. Yet, he said, for the entitled class who want everything handed to them, they will never have enough to be grateful. Wow, what a passage. The first step is intellectualism. Reasoning God out of your life. The second step of that is ingratitude. Where now there is no God, you may feel the need to be thankful, but you don't have anybody to be thankful to. So you begin to take the glory. You begin to take the credit as a people. The next step in this ladder down into the cultural chaos is idolatry. Idolatry, and we read about it in verses 22 and 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, friend, when you and I today think of an idol, we picture a stone statue, or we think about the image of a deity on a shelf. But listen to me, an idol can be anything that takes the place of God in our lives. Anything that we love more, serve more, fear more, or worship more than the true and living God. Once it takes position number one in your life, you have another God before the true and living God, and that is idolatry. That's why I say there really are no true atheists in the world, though they may believe that. Ultimately, they'll either worship the true and living God, or they will worship a God that they have created or invented, which is idolatry. They end up worshiping themselves. In our materialistic society, we end up worshiping all different kinds of gods. We think we're somehow distinct from the ancient people of Greece or Rome or Egypt who had a plethora of gods. Well, we have gods named money. We have a god named success. A god named power. A god named sex. We have a god named pornography. A god named drugs. We have a god named self. Listen to what Google reported. Google reported that on its Android-based phones, about 93 million selfies are uploaded to social media each day. Now, listen to me. Not every selfie is self-worship, but it does reveal a symptom of a narcissistic society, doesn't it? We love making ourselves the center of attention. We crave adoration. We want to be patted on the back. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We want to be even in, in our wildest twistings of the truth. We want to get a pat on the back. By the way, 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 and 2, Paul said in the last days, there will be perilous times, but understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Are we there? Without a doubt. I'm not, I may not be very popular right now at this moment, but the only way out is through. So there's two more left in this cycle down into the moral chaos. I, I promise you there is hope at the end of this message. Then the next step is immorality. Immorality, we read about it in verses 24 through 27 where Paul talks about God giving them up to the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie 
God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to the nation. And likewise, the men, he's talking about their sexual revolution and then homosexual revolution, if you want to be honest. The next sign in Romans 1 society, listen to me, is rampant sexual perversion. Particularly what he says here, the full-blown acceptance and celebration of the homosexual lifestyle. Now let me pause right here and just interject a thought. God loves the LBGT crowd. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, including those who practice these things because we were that same mentality, that same lust, that same brokenness before Jesus Christ saved us and redeemed us. So don't hear hate speech. Hear truth and hear that God loves you, but God doesn't want you to stay in the, in the moral filth. He wants to pull you up out of that, save you, redeem you, wash you, make you new, and put you on a path of holiness and eternal life. Here's what Paul says, though. He singles out homosexuality because it has a unique side effect. Listen to me. He says it leads to the total unraveling of the natural order. Things become sideways. Definitions are no longer clear anymore. Anything goes. Once he says homosexuality is accepted and celebrated and welcomed with open arms, he says it leads to the redefinition of everything, which is where we are today. For thousands of years, the cultural norm has been man and woman in marriage. And now the past few years, we've decided we're going to throw a monkey wrench in that. We're smarter than God. We're more evolved. We can do it differently. And Paul says here in Romans 1, hey, if you do that, be wary of where you're going to end up. Because then you redefine everything. Sexuality, marriage, gender. The floodgates become open and then anything goes because nothing is off limits anymore. You say, preacher, you're just making too much. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. Listen to this. In 2021, there was a viral video that made headlines. I don't know if you saw this or not. It was a clip of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus singing a lighthearted tune that they composed and arranged themselves about their goals. Listen, to capture the hearts and minds of a younger generation you tell me there's not a spiritual battle going on right now for your children and grandchildren. Here's the lyrics of the song. We'll convert your children. Happens bit by bit. Quietly and subtly. And you'll barely notice it. You can keep them from disco. Warn them about San Francisco. Make them wear pleated pants. We don't care. We'll convert your children We'll make them tolerant and fair. We'll convert your children. Someone's got to teach them not to hate. We're coming for them. Friend, if there was ever anything out of the pit of hell. Just this week, we saw media giant Disney. Where Disney revealed videos of CEO meetings, behind closed door meetings. But they revealed that they had a quote unquote gay agenda to add queerness into the TV shows and the movies of children. Friend, when did it go from entertaining children to indoctrinating children into a particular worldview? How far have we come? You know what Jesus says in Matthew 18 and verse 6? 
He says, Woe be it to anyone who would lead these little ones astray, for it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and then to be thrown into the sea than to lead a young one astray. My God, what have we done in our society today? You see, friend, listen. What one generation tolerates, the next generation embraces. And what one generation embraces, the next generation celebrates. And now we have Pride Month. We have, hey, pick your own pronoun. We have Drags Queen Story Hour. We have trans men competing in NCAA women's sports. Where are the feminists rising up and saying, wait a second, women's rights is completely gone now because we've redefined everything. And you know what that leads to? The last step. The last step, number five, is insanity. That's where we are. Verse 28 through 32, I won't read that whole list again. But he says, they become filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Paul hits everybody there, including you and me. And that long list, as I read that list, you know what description that is? That's hell on earth. When a nation is totally abandoned God, they no longer know basic right from wrong and its leaders have zero common sense anymore. You know your culture has reached the bottom rung when somebody who's nominated to sit on the highest court of a land is asked a very simple question, what is a woman? And they can't or they won't define a very basic thing because we've drifted down into moral insanity. And when a nation gets to that point, it implodes. It falls apart from the inside out. God is holding the boat. He lets go of the boat, lets it go downriver and say, all right, this is what you want. Fine, have it your way. My, my. Number one, the downfall of a civilization. Number two, I want you to see this morning the duty of a Christian. What are we to do? It seems hopeless, Brother Derek. You've just described for me a picture that I have trouble getting my mind wrapped around. How are we to live? Well, I want to offer three conclusions at the end today. It's obvious that our ship is taken on water. We are sinking fast, but that doesn't mean we have to throw up our hands and give up. That doesn't mean we quit going to church. We stop reading our Bible. We, we no longer are involved in culture. We don't vote anymore. We don't try and read. That doesn't mean any of that. That's just a reality check to let you and I know, hey, this ain't 1950 golden era Billy Graham era anymore where you can just open the Bible and people are like, oh my gosh, Holy Scripture. No, we're down at rung number five, insanity. And so our work is cut out for us, isn't it, church? God has called us, though, to live at such a time as this so that we might remain steadfast, so that we might man the lifeboats even though the ship is going down. I want to be out there rescuing the perishing. The duty of a Christian. What are we to do? First off this, we are to preserve culture. To preserve culture. Listen to what Jesus said, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he tells Christians, you're the salt and the light of the world. In other words, in the ancient world, they didn't have refrigeration, so in order to preserve meat, they would coat it heavily in salt to act as a preservative against decay. Light dispels the darkness. And as Christians, he's saying, look, your role is to act as an agent against moral decay and spiritual darkness. Now that image of salt. When Jesus commanded us to be salt, He's reminding us, listen, salt could not stop decay totally, but it could slow it. Listen, the church will never be able to reverse the decay or create some kind of Christian utopia world. But what we can do is we can delay the process of corroding in our world and give our culture a longer quote-unquote shelf life. And as salt, we preserve culture. Salt also encourages thirst. And as you live as a salty Christian, you're to engender interest and and warmth in the lives of people. And they want to know, what is it about you that makes you different? How are you filled with joy? Why do you think the way that you do? Why do you go to the house of God? That makes them salty. That makes them thirsty. So that then they'll be drawn to Jesus Christ. But let me give you this image. Imagine thousands of Christians with their backs pressed up against the Hoover Dam. The dam is beginning to leak and the concrete is beginning to loosen in the massive structure. But there you have a band of faithful believers pushed up against the concrete and they realize we're not strong enough. We we don't have the ability to prevent the eventual collapse of the dam. But perhaps what we can do is postpone it a little while so you begin to stick your finger in the holes of the dam. You begin to push up against it. You begin to do all that you can to prevent that leak from going into opening up the full-on floodgates. Perhaps... We can postpone the destruction of a culture a little longer, creating the opportunity that a few might be saved. You see, the goal of the church isn't to repair the dam, but to stall the destruction so that a few more might be brought into the kingdom of God before it's everlastingly too late. That's what God has called us to do. We may not be able to do it politically or we may not be able to do it through other means but through the spiritual act of living your Christian life in a powerful, uncompromising way. Jesus says you can be stronger than you think. You see, right now the Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians that the Holy Spirit is working through the church and the church on the earth acts as a restrainer against the total floodgates of sin and evil being unleashed on the world. That's why... The world hates the church because the church stands there not as the servant of the state or the master of the state, but as the conscience of the state. We're the ones who open the Word of God and say, no, here's what God says. Don't don't make that decision. Don't go that way. Don't put that policy in place. Here's what God's Word says. And the world hates the church because they want to silence us and remove us. Because when you hear the truth of God, you know what it does? It brings sting. It brings conviction to your heart. But the Bible says the Holy Spirit working through the church is a restrainer. And when this rapture takes place, that's when Christ comes for His bride, the church. And when the church is removed from the earth, you know what's going to happen? All the salt and light will be taken out in a moment. And what's left is what's called the tribulation period, literally hell on earth. And the dam of God's mercy will break, loosening forth the flood waters of His active wrath. 
But as salty Christians, we prevent our culture from total truth decay by preaching Christ. You say it's a losing battle, Derek. No, I've read the end of the book. He wins. We may not be able to save this country, and prophetically I don't even think that's on God's agenda, but what we can do is rescue the perishing. Forestall the breaking of the dam. Secondly, what else are we to do? We are to purify the church for revival. Can I please have a few more extra minutes of your time this morning? This is so important. We are to purify the church for revival. Look at what 1 Peter 4.17 says. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. That's you and me, the church. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Look at what Peter is saying here. He said, if you want to see your society brought back from the brink of destruction, don't spend all your time pointing fingers out there telling them how bad of sinners they are. We should expect that. Sinners are going to sin. Wretch is going to wretch. We expect that from a lost and broken world. But what Peter says, hey, if you want to see God do something, church, have revival in your own life, in your own church body, and then let that go out and permeate the rest of the culture. We must put God first again. We must repent of our sin. We must desperately want God to move in this day, this hour, this generation, this church, my family, my school, my workplace. God move! Leonard Ravenhill, the great revivalist, said this, quote, the only reason we don't have revival is because we are willing to live without it. My God. Listen to what the Bible has sown forth to be true. Second Chronicles 7.14, still true, the day it was written. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. That sounds like a promise from God. The question is, do we want it? Or are we content just to Scroll on our phone and say, yep, I told you so. I knew that was going to happen. We've got to love the lost. Love our culture. Not for the wrong that they're doing, but in the way that Christ loved us when He looked out upon the world and He saw sin and, and evil and wickedness and loved through that and went to the cross and died. And I still believe in the power and in the promise of revival. I've read my Bible and I've seen it happen in the Word of God. Jonah went to Nineveh, the most wicked city on the face of the earth in his day, and he preached half-heartedly the most pitiful one-point sermon you've ever heard in your life. Repent, Nineveh, 40 days and you'll be overthrown. He had the gusto of a hound dog and yet God came through and did the most miraculous supernatural revival in that country. The Bible says that even the animals got right with Him. And then you go to Chronicles where you see Josiah. He goes in and they find the dusty scroll of God's Word and they open it up 
And as they are even reading it, people fall under conviction and revival is sparked in Judah once again. Hey, listen, look back at the history of this country from the pilgrims who came on the Mayflower to the first and the second great awakenings to the Jesus movement of the 1960s. America's history, it's undeniable, has been shaped by preachers and revivals and God breaking out and God saving people and folks getting right and the church getting on board with God's program. Hey, if it happens, back then I'm gullible I believe that God can do it in this lost and crooked generation in fact when it's most hopeless when it's most dark when there's the least light and answers that's when it's ready for God to break through and open up hearts and minds once again oh the old time preacher said it like this if all the sleeping folk would wake up and all the lukewarm folks would fire up, if all the dishonest folks would fess up and the disgruntled folks sweeten up, all the discouraged folks begin to look up and all the estranged folks start to make up, if all the gossipers will shut up and all the dry bones will shake up, all the true soldiers will stand up and the church will pray, then we can have revival in the house of God. See, I don't believe the scoreboard. I know it says we're down. I know it says we're defeated. I know it says that the bad guys are winning. But I still believe my Bible that as long as there's air in these lungs and strength in these bones, I'm going to shout it from the rooftops that Jesus saves. That Jesus can take anybody and transform them. He can break through with a miracle. He can raise up a dead marriage and a dead sinner and a dead church and give it new life in Jesus Christ's name. Listen to what happened in 1904 and 5. They had a revival called the Welsh Revival and it spread to America. The result was the single greatest awakening in our country. On November the 2nd, listen to what happened in these United States. November 2nd, 1904, the Supreme Court of Georgia closed so people could go to midday revival prayer meetings. Every store, factory, office, and even saloons closed in Burlington, Iowa, for revival meetings. In Denver, Colorado, think about if this happened today. The mayor called for a day of prayer on January 20th, 1905, and the whole city was shut down, and people were standing room only in the churches. One evening in Los Angeles, listen to what happened in 1905, the Grand Opera House was filled past midnight with drunks and prostitutes seeking salvation. I'm jealous. I don't want to go to my grave until I can say truly I saw a genuine heaven sent, earth shattering revival move of the Spirit of God. Now my Bible doesn't prophesy a revival before the tribulation but that doesn't mean that God can't do it. Nobody knows the day or the hour of my Lord's return. I'm to live with urgency. I'm to live with expectancy. I'm to live on the edge of my seat, tiptoes toward the balcony of heaven because Jesus may come. But I'm going to live my life believing that everything depends upon me and pray like everything depends upon Him. I'm going to act and move and believe and preach that there's still hope, there's still help, that God can still turn this ship around. We don't have to go in silently into the night. We can have a move of God in our country again. Lastly, not only are we to purify for a revival, but we're to preach Christ 
drop back to verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. I know I've gone long today and y'all have been generous to me. But he says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I know this is not popular preaching. I know this is not politically correct preaching. I know you may have not come to the house of God to hear this word today, but I'm here today to tell you that Jesus still loves sinners. That the gospel is still powerful to save. That Jesus died for the LBGT crowd. Jesus died for the drug addicts. Jesus died for the meth heads and the prostitutes. That Christ loves the BLM crowd. That Christ has a heart for the doubting Thomas and the skeptics out there who say God doesn't exist. That God loves sinners. And there's still power in the old rugged cross and the old-fashioned message of a whosoever will will come unto Him and find mercy and grace. America may go under, but there is a lifeboat called the old ship of Zion. It's piloted by Jesus Christ and He's never lost a single one who's got on board with Him. I talked to you at the beginning of the message about the Titanic. What an image of where we are today. The ship going down. What are we to do? Don't give in to the fear. Don't give in to the media. The lies. Here's an example. John Harper was a man who was on the Titanic the night it sank. He was a widower. He was headed to the great Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois. Not only was he going to preach there, but he was intending to accept the church's offer to become their next pastor. Four years later, after the Titanic sank, they had a survivor's meeting in Ontario, and a young Scotsman rose up during the meeting, and he began to tell his testimony. He said, I want everybody to know I'm the last convert of John Harper. And then he began to tell this story. He said, as the ship was going down and I was in those icy waters, drifting alone that awful night, the tide brought me Mr. John Harper. On a piece of wreckage, he swam nearby me and he shouted out from his wreckage, Sir, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior? I yelled back, No, sir, I do not. And the waves bore him away. But strange to say, a few minutes later, the tide brought John Harper back to me. And he yelled out from his wreckage, Sir, are you saved yet? Have you given your life to Christ? And I yelled back to him, No. The tide bore him away. And a third time, he drifted in my direction. And he said, Son, these are my dying words. Christ died for you in your sins and He rose from the grave to pay and to purchase you a place in heaven. Call upon Him and thou shalt be saved. And he said, shortly after that, Reverend Harper went down to the deep and there I was alone under the star-spangled sky looking up. I asked God if He would save me there in those frigid waters. I would give the rest of my days to Him. And shortly after that, a lifeboat pulled up pulled me out of the icy waters. And ever since then, I am going around telling anyone who will listen, I'm the last convert of John Harper. Praise the name of Jesus.
What about you today? Are you lost in sin? You don't have to go down with the ship. You can be saved and you can know today I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained with sin, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry from the waters, lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me. Oh, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. I hope that can be your testimony today.